Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Policy Director Brian Wild moderates a discussion with Drew Littman and Brian McGuire, also policy directors at Brownstein, on what lies ahead with tax reform and the current political climate compared with the last time tax reform was passed in 1986. So again, my name is uh, Brian Wild. Uh, I'm on Team Republican here, but today I'm going to act like a moderator, hopefully. Um, and we're here to talk about tax reform. So just a little about me. I've been in D.C. for 25 years. Uh, I'm actually originally from Colorado. Uh, came out here, worked for a senator, um, Senator Hank Brown from Colorado, and then uh, haven't figured out a way to get back west again. But I'm trying. I'll get there eventually. Uh, but I worked in the Senate. I worked in the House. I worked in the White House, uh, all for Republicans. Um, and I'll start here on our left. So Drew Littman, uh, I have the pleasure of, he has a couple, couple offices down from me. Uh, Drew's been in D.C. a long time as well. He's actually on the Democratic side. Uh, he worked for Senator Barbara Boxer uh, for a number of years, uh, was policy director for her, um, went on, was chief of staff to Senator Al Franken uh, from Minnesota. Uh, he's been in the private sector. He's been in the public sector. Um, he is uh, a man of many talents and lately uh, has become my political sparring partner. Um, to his right, uh, both figuratively and literally, uh, is Brian McGuire. Uh, we we're really excited. Brian just recently joined us uh, in the Brownstein shop. Uh, he was most recently chief of staff uh, to Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, where he was with the senator for a number of years um, and now uh, he's with us, and he gets to be our, our Republican whisperer. Um, and these days, that means a new whisperer every 10 to 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> let's just start with the table setting, and I'm going to look at Brian uh, first, since Republicans are in charge. Um, we've had uh, a whole host of, uh, of issues that were going to be top line for Republicans uh, we've had health care, we talked about immigration, we talked about transportation infrastructure, um, and we talked about tax reform. And um, we are now at a position, it seems like, D.C. is pivoting off of health care and into tax reform. Um, and maybe you can kind of just s s table set us where we're at, what's going on, who are the players, and et cetera. Sure. Well, thanks uh, for having me. I uh, joined Brownstein recently. As Brian said, I came on board in June. I had worked for uh, Leader McConnell for ten and a half years, the last two and a half years of which I spent as chief of staff. And um, <clears throat> I left fairly recently, so I have some sense of what the political pressures are and um, who the who the relevant players are. But as Brian also said, it's very hard these days to say with any degree of certainty what's going to happen minute to minute. It's a, a very volatile and dynamic situation on the Hill that tax reform is something that all Republicans from the White House to the House to the Senate have been on some level itching to, to move to because health care reform and repeal and replace is such a sort of inherently difficult issue to, to um, deal with. And I think the, the challenges of tax reform notwithstanding, it is something that naturally is, is a little bit of an easier fit for Republicans. And I think um, politically slightly less perilous. There's a lot of talk about somebody's ox gets gored, how do you get rid of these deductions, all these competing industries and businesses, and that's all true. But I do think that there's something, again, a little less inherently um, neuralgic or touchy as, as health care 
for people. You know, when you say that you're going to eliminate a deduction for a certain industry, the only people who really get riled up are the people who work in that company and the lobbyists who work for that company. But, you know, people don't run to the ramparts when you say you're going to eliminate or reduce some kind of a a provision in the tax code quite the way they do when you talk about Medicare or Medicaid. So I think all things being equal, this should be an easier um, exercise than health care reform. But again, it's it's got its own challenges. It's going to be very difficult. Any kind of major tax reform is, and given the political dynamics of the moment, there are a lot of other sort of new, fresh challenges that members are going to have to deal with. But if you're a Republican, I think you have to be encouraged by two things, or three things, really. One, the... Um, the fact that legislatively there hasn't been a lot of high uh, visibility uh, legislative wins for the for the president since January, there have been a number, but in terms of the high visibility ones like health care reform and tax reform, the fact that that hasn't happened creates a kind of imperative for something to happen and a need for members to do something on 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 tax reform, and so I think that there's a very strong political imperative at play here, and um, it, the sort of counterintuitive argument is the less you've done previously, the more likely it is you're able to get this done because members have to have something that they're that they're voting for and that they can pat, uh, point to when they go back to the voters next next November. Another thing that I think you have to be encouraged by is the fact that the president has been extremely engaged on tax reform. He's been very, uh, you know, persistent for the last several weeks on the need to do this. He's given a lot of public uh, appearances on it. He's going to be <clears throat> in Indiana uh, in the next couple of days. Vice President Pence is also going to be in Indiana. And so they have a clear strategy that they're executing. And if you're Republicans in the House or the Senate, that's a very encouraging thing. And then I think the other encouraging thing, as I said before, is that the topic, tax reform, is something that unites everybody from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz and the Republican Party, at least in the Senate, if Republicans can't get together on cutting taxes, it sort of raises the question of what they can get together on. Um, this is something that everybody agrees on in principle. Working out the details won't be easy, but I think those three factors are um, what Republicans are telling themselves are, are reasons for encouragement on this exercise. So I am optimistic about it, and uh, I'm going to continue to be until there's good reason to be otherwise. And um, this week is going to be a big week as we start seeing some details, and that's when things start getting interesting. All right, so so Drew, Brian kind of has this rosy uh, scenario that the, the, the timing's right, the stars are aligned, that Republicans are going to get this done, that the political environment is one uh, where they can move forward. Um, the last time we really did tax reform uh, has been more than a couple decades ago. Um, so staying at the big picture, uh, how is this political environment compared to then, and are there lessons? Well, thank you, Brian. I think the last time that we did tax reform, believe it or not, was 1986, a midterm election year, incidentally. And there's a huge, one huge difference between Congress now and Congress then. And I'll confine myself to the Senate because it's an easier example to use. If you look at the Senate Finance Committee in 1986, the chairman was a Republican who was one of the most pro-choice members of the Senate. 
The second most pro-choice member of the Senate was also a Republican who was on that committee. The ranking Democrat was a conservative from Louisiana, mainly interested in the extractive uh, industries, not in social policy as much. If you look down the rosters, I feel comfortable saying that in 1986, half or most of the Republicans on the Finance Committee were liberal, and more than half of the Democrats on the committee were conservative. What that meant is not just that you could build a coalition, but that these folks were used to being members of bipartisan coalitions routinely, not just on taxes, on every subject you can name, they crossed party lines to work together. Geography might have mattered more for a lot of these issues than party lines. So they really had a habit of working together, of socializing, all the things that go along with that. If you look at today's finance committee, the difference is so conspicuous. You have one Democrat um, from a red state, Claire McCaskill, the most junior Democrat on the committee. You have one Republican from a state that Hillary Clinton won, and that's, that's Dean Heller. I think he's the most junior Republican on the committee. There's no crossover in terms of ideology, priorities, preferences. So, so historically, we're at a very different moment where you don't have the normal basis for trust and bipartisan activity. I think that's really conspicuous. And it, it means, and I, and I think we're going to get here, um, it means that you're much more likely to have a one-party tax reform than anything resembling bipartisan tax reform. So uh, just today or last night and then again today, um, the president's had uh, bipartisan members to the White House um, specifically to talk about tax reform. Um, one of the decisions that Leader McConnell, uh, your former boss, is going to have to make um, is, is the strategic decision of whether to use budget reconciliation, which is an inherently partisan process, or not to accomplish tax reform. Um, can you just kind of walk us through the, the thinking on, on that? Can, can, can the Republicans work with the Democrats? Can the Democrats work with Republicans? Um, is reconciliation the best way to go? And what is it? Sure. I'll try to make it as interesting as possible. But um, first, back to Drew's point, and this relates to Brian's question. In 1986, one of the leaders in the tax reform effort was Bill Bradley, who was a Democrat from New Jersey, and I think that's a good indication of how different the the Congress is today, that there's nobody on the Democratic side that I can think of who could potentially step forward and be a leader on the issue of tax reform. And one of the reasons that that was possible in 1986 is because both Republicans and Democrats had agreed beforehand what the purpose of tax reform was. And I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find any kind of agreement between Republicans or Democratic leaders on what the purpose of tax reform is. And so I think that, above all else, is the reason that this is going to be a um, largely partisan exercise, because there's really no fundamental agreement on principles as to what the purpose of tax reform is. So if you assume that that's the case, and I do, the Senate has available and the House has available to it something called reconciliation, which is a very powerful legislative tool but because it's very powerful, powerful in the sense that it enables you to do something without amendment on a 51-vote basis. Um, it's, it's got uh, great restrictions on what you can do with it. But <clears throat> the, um, the process basically <clears throat> works in this way that the tax writing committees 
the, the budget committee rather in both the House and the Senate generate a budget, and then as part of that budget, they uh, generate instructions for the tax writing committees, and those instructions outline what the parameters of a tax reform bill would look like. And um, there's a six-part test as to what's permissible under these rules, and then you have to have this kind of forum for determining whether provisions meet those tests, and it's very arcane. And the, the, the upshot is that the, these instructions, the, this mechanism gives Congress the ability to pass things on a 51-vote margin. And um, so that's what was available to us for repeal of health care. And um, that we, we thought that with 50 votes or 51 votes, we would be in a much better position to repeal that bill. We didn't have any expectations that Democrats would join in that exercise. I think we lost the mic. Um, but I think the, the president clearly thinks that there's some chance that at least three Democrats are willing to join us when it comes to tax reform, and the three in particular that he's thinking of are Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, and uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, three states which uh, President Trump won by significant margins. In Indiana, he won by 19 or 20 points. In North Dakota, 36. And in uh, West Virginia, I think something on the order of 35 as well. Um, I'm, I'm not confident that any of these three Democrats are going to be joining Republicans in voting for the tax bill that uh, the committees put forward, but the president is hopeful that they will, or at least trying very hard to make sure that one or two of them do, and that, you know, I, that's perfectly understandable given how narrow the Republican majority is. In the Senate, you try to build a margin of safety um, given that you've got a couple of members in the Republican conference who, even though they are known as conservatives, still usually find a reason to oppose whatever the the party puts forward. So I, I think that it's smart for him to try to build a margin of safety. I don't have a high degree of confidence that any of them will be there in the end, but um, I can understand why he's doing it. What was the second part of the question, Brian? I'm good. You're good? All right. So I actually have a follow-up on that, and I'll come back to But But I, I think it's a really interesting point that the there's a disagreement on what the principles are for tax reform. And, and um, you know, tax reform is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, to some it's tax cuts. To some it's simplification. To, to some it's economic growth over all things. To, to some it's, uh, yeah, progressivity. And, and to others it's raising revenue. So if, if Republicans own this and decide that, that they're going to go that way, what, what are the Republican principles for tax reform? And then I'll, I'll go to Drew and say, what, how are the Democrats differ than that? I think a, a fundamental one, and this is where there's a divide, is that the purpose of tax reform, and this was certainly true in 1986, is to make the United States more competitive, both domestically and internationally. And how you do that is an open question, but I think, you know, what I'm hearing a lot from Democrats is a kind of negative proposition that they don't want to do X and they don't want to do Y. They won't get behind anything that um, re reduces taxes by a penny on the, quote, top 1%, and they don't want to add anything to the deficit, which to me is sort of a novel concept for Democrats, but um, they're sort of digging in on that principle and the, and the principle that they don't want to drop a penny um, in tax receipts from the top 1%. So 
I think to me what that suggests is that there's nothing that Republicans propose that they would support because I think invariably um, if you're if you're cutting on on S corps you could argue that you're you're cutting taxes for the one percent because S corps. Um, you know, which are individuals, m many of which are individuals that file through the uh, individual side. You could argue that that's a, a tax cut on on the quote rich. So, I, I don't think that Democrats are positioning themselves to be supportive in any way. But so competitiveness is a big um, feature of a Republican proposal. I think fairness and simplicity are both very important. Reducing the number of um, the, the the rates from seven to three is something that you read a lot about. I think. Simplicity, obviously, is very popular. Um, fairness is also very important. Politically, I think that's important to the president as well. And then I think also delivering a tax cut to the middle class is something that the president has repeatedly said and members of Congress have repeatedly said is really important to them um, this time around. So they'll be pushing for all those things. But I think, you know, politically, it would be very um, damaging to the to the president and to the Republicans if what they ended up generating was not a major tax cut to the middle class, because I think that um, you know the voters who put Trump in in office fully expect that, and I don't think that that's lost either on the House Republicans, the Senate Republicans, or of course the president, and they're going to make sure that whatever they produce is that. All right, I can't help myself, so I got to be a little mean here. So, Drew, uh, why don't Democrats want to make America more competitive, lower rates, and give a tax break to the middle class? You didn't say make America great again, but, but let's get right to it. So um, on August 1st, 45 of the 48 Senate Democrats sent a letter to the president and the Republican leaders in the Senate specifying what they considered prerequisites for tax reform. No tax cut for the top 1% no tax increase for middle, middle class families, no offsetting cuts in Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security, no increase in the deficit, and the bill has to be considered uh, in regular order, which means hearings, markup, amendments, uh, and, and meeting a 60-vote threshold if necessary. I, I think you're correct in saying Democrats don't expect those prerequisites to be met. I think on some of them there probably is some negotiating room. I think... Democrats might accept the one percent, top one percent, keeping a little more if they otherwise were very happy with the bill. But as far as I know, aside from um, the three senators who didn't sign the letter, and that's Heidekamp, Manchin, and Donnelly, all of them running for re-election in states that Trump won overwhelmingly, Democrats. It's true that Democrats aren't participating. They lay that at the feet of Republicans. But I've spoken to some senior Democrats on the Hill who said we don't have any proposals. We're not participating. I said, well, what would you want to see come out of the process? He said, we don't even talk about it. So, so it's true that Democrats aren't playing, and that list of prerequisites is only a list of prerequisites for them to participate. It's not actually a list of goals, of objectives in tax reform. It's just this is, this is the ante to, uh, to sit at the table, basically. So also, let me, if I haven't horrified you yet, let me throw in a political consideration that, that looms in the background. I'm not saying this is what the Democrats are thinking about, but you could see how some of them might be. President Trump has gone the longest of any president in memory without a significant legislative accomplishment. The only important bill he passed, he signed is the Russia sanctions bill, which he signed very unhappily. Congress jammed that one down his throat. 
there's something appealing about denying Trump accomplishments. And at a, at a certain point, if Democrats feel like they're excluded from the process anyway, they're, they're, they're not going to have an appetite to cooperate. Now, I think it may be very different for the three, member, three senators who we've named. Um, and they, they may see advantages in cooperating with the Republicans. I think Republicans would love to get at least one of them so that they can claim that they passed a bipartisan bill despite the criticisms that they'll hear from other Democrats. Um, and I, don't, I couldn't game out or, or make book on what the prospects are for getting a Democratic, uh, Democrat to vote for that bill. But it's, I think it is a live issue where it wasn't with health care reform. Really quick, I'll just move in. So we've uh, into the predictions s- side of things. So uh, Republicans have tried to repeal uh, and replace uh, Obamacare now at least four times in the Senate um, through a very similar reconciliation and partisan process. Um, I, I think you both have said that, that taxes are different um, and that this process is a little more unifying to Republicans. Um, so, so does this actually happen? Um, can can tax reform get done? And and then also, can you kind of give us a, a little bit of a timeline? Like uh, I've heard everything on it just in the last twenty four hours. I've I've heard that this is going to get done in two weeks. I've heard it's going to get done by uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, you should talk to House members more. They're very optimistic. Um, uh, I've heard you know Thanksgiving. I've heard Christmas. Um, what is the if it's going to get done? When is it going to get done? People from the Senate are less optimistic on timelines than people from the House. You can pass things pretty quickly over there. It takes a long time to do anything <laughs> in the Senate. So, um, I think that just looking at the calendar, the following week of the Senate, I think is not in session. When we come back conversations will shift to whether we can pass a budget that will generate the reconciliation instructions that the committees can then look at. So you're looking at a mid-October to end of October debate over that. The committees will then presumably, if the budget does pass, which is a big if in the House and the Senate, um, get to work on this regular order process of, of having hearings and talking about more specifics, working through the details. So I think optimistically you could see bill text in mid to late November and potentially have a vote in both houses of Congress at the end of the year. My expectation is that you could do that by the end of the year. I don't think that's overly optimistic. It's optimistic, but I don't think overly optimistic, but I don't think that um, the president would be likely to sign anything before the beginning of next year. So my view is that if everything goes well, and you sort of account for the differences between the House and the Senate, then in the first quarter of 2018, we could see the president sign a, a tax reform bill. I, I may be the only one uh, who's been in D.C. long enough to remember when Republicans prioritized deficit reduction. But if that were a governing principle here, I think it would be very hard to come up with a satisfactory bill. I think if we switch from tax reform, which is the term we've been using through this conversation, to tax cuts, I think it's easier to build a majority in both the House and the Senate for simply cutting taxes, a Republican majority in the House and Senate. I think also we've talked mostly about the Senate, but this is all much trickier in the House, um, where you have Senator McConnell, I think, has much greater command of his caucus, understanding what his caucus members want, it just works very differently in the House, where the Freedom Caucus almost defines itself uh, by opposition to leadership. 
I think if you're betting for or against any major bill passing Congress, you're betting with the House if you bet against. In the long run, there are so many factors militating against ultimately passing something that both chambers are satisfied with. Um, I would expect a bill to pass the Senate. I couldn't predict what would happen in the House, and I don't know if a bill could. I just don't know if a bill could pass the House. But I think you may continue to hear the term tax reform. But what we're going to get, I think, is a tax cut bill. Uh, so thanks again. If you guys have questions, please follow up uh, with either us or our colleagues. And um, thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.